0: everyone. Hi, can you all hear me okay? Thank you so much for coming out tonight to my story, my journey, my freedom. Thank you, Penn. Thank you, New York Poets Cafe for having us. Um, I'm Mimi Locke. I'm the co-founder and I'm also the executive director of Voice Mm. of Witness. (coughs) And... I'm joined by Dave Eggers, who is also the co founder and editor at Voice of Witness. And <laughs> um, Voice of Witness, for those of you who might not know us, we're a nonprofit based in San Francisco. Our mission is to advance human rights by amplifying unheard voices like Soledad's voices that are, have are people who've been impacted by injustice. Uh, we have a book series that's Published by Haymarket, which features the first hand accounts of people who are most closely affected by the criminal justice system and by migration and displacement. We also have an education program that brings these stories and issues into over 20,000 classrooms every year. And we also train journalists, attorneys, nonprofit workers, and medical professionals in our oral history methodology. So we're here tonight to talk about the power of personal stories and the effect it can have on, real, on change, the effect it can have on the listener and the storyteller. And first of all, Dave, will be talking a li- Dave and I will be talking a little bit about Voice of Witness, how it came about, what we do. And then we'll be joined by Soledad and Gabrielle, who are two narrators from the latest Voice of Witness book, Solito Solita crossing borders with youth refugees from Central America. They'll be talking a little bit about their story, their journey here to the States and their lives since, and also their experience of sharing their story. And then we'll finish up with questions from the audience. Okay, so start thinking of questions now. (laughs) (laughs) um, Okay, so um, I want to kick off a little bit. Um, I feel like I'm really far away from you. Do you want to? Well, we're uh, w- yeah, sure. Okay. We're
1: going to save seats for Soledove and I think we can... All right.
0: Okay. All right.
1: We'll get a little closer.
0: Yeah. That's that. Okay. Um, we'll pretend we're sitting at a bus stop. <laughs> um, okay. So um, So. Dave, Val, has Voice of Witness has been on quite a long journey. We're celebrating our 10th year as a nonprofit this year, unbelievably. Um, but it all started with an idea that you had, I believe, when you were on a trip to Sudan. Can yeah, you tell I us a little m- bit about that?
1: Um, back in 2003, I went to what is now South Sudan with Valentino Deng, who I ended up writing uh, a novel based on his life called What is the What? And Valentino and I went back to his hometown of Mario Bay in the Baro-Ghazal region, and um, he hadn't been there since he was about seven years old, and uh, he had been uh, he fled when militias came and uh, raised much of his village and drove many of the uh, residents out, especially the boys. He became one of the so-called lost boys of Sudan. And um, we returned then and he reunited with much of his family. And it should have been a joyful time for him, but he was burdened by a kind of survivor survivor's guilt and um, those who had stayed in his village through subsequent attacks by the militias um, had been through more than he had, he felt like, even though he'd grown up in refugee camps in Ethiopia and Kenya. Um, and especially he felt burdened by the, bu- the experiences of a lot of uh, his schoolmates, the girls that often were taken by the militias, thrown on horseback, and sold into slavery. and um, when we were there in his village, uh, a number of these girls that he had grown up with uh, had just been returned uh, to the village uh, with the help of Save the Children. And we were in the middle of trying to get his story told. And Valentino and I thought, well, right when we're finished, these, the stories of these women, wh- which had not been told. We couldn't find record of their stories anywhere. And a lot of the NGOs that worked with them took very small, uh, uh, did very small, short interviews with them, but you could find only paragraphs about their experiences. So we did three interviews when we were there uh, at length with women who had just returned. And we said, right when we're finished uh, with Valentino's story, we're going to try to figure out a way to get their voices out. And, And it occurred to me that oral history might be that way, to do it, to do it economically to do it uh, 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 because we couldn't write whole books about everybody's life. But we thought, okay, so that was in the back of my mind. I went back to Berkeley, and I was asked to introduce uh, Studs Terkel at an event at UC Berkeley. He's the godfather of modern oral history, and I grew up in Chicago in his shadow. And after that event, I had the great honor of introducing him. Um, Dr. Lola Volan came up to me, and she said, if you're interested in oral history, what we really need to hear are the stories of the wrongfully convicted and exonerated men and women in the United States. She said, everybody hears that we've uh, the Innocence Project has released or gotten the release uh, of a man who's done 20 years, or a woman that's done 10 years wrongfully. But we think that their lives are all cake at that point. But that's just the beginning. And there's so many struggles that they go through after that. So having met her in the lobby of uh, this venue at Berkeley uh, with Studs Terkel in the background, we created Voice of Witness and taught the first class at UC Berkeley which a number of students interviewed wrongfully convicted men and women and that became Surviving Justice. So that was the beginning. What, What I thought would be a series of just international human rights abuses and those who we could enable to speak about them started with human rights abuses here in the U.S., Mm -hmm. and then we thought, now we're going to get to South Sudan, and what happened? Hurricane Katrina hit, right when we were publishing Surviving Justice, and then that became the second book, and then shortly thereafter we did Underground Underground America, America. which is where Mimi came in as a researcher, and within a year or so, Mimi was the executive director, and she's the one that got our nonprofit status and took what was an amorphous idea and made it into a Functioning and professional uh, nonprofits. So we owe s- so much to Mimi, and we got to <laughs> ra- give her a round of applause.
0: Sometimes I like to thank you. Sometimes I like to think of it as um, you originated the recipes, and then I helped you open the restaurant. Oh, that's in a way, good, yeah. Mimi. It's kind I've of never nice, heard
1: yeah. you say that. That's good.
0: Um, so, and then since then, we've produced uh, titles on that. You know, we eventually did do the book on. Sudan, Out of
1: Exile. And you know what? If you look up, th- you know that th- there's a revolution going on in South, S- in Sudan right now, but a lot of the stories from Out of Exile, which is the stories of the internally displaced and exiled and uh, uh, refugees from Sudan and South Sudan, so many of these stories, especially uh, the incredible victimization of women in Sudan, uh, that was their struggles led to the situation that we have now with... Uh, Bashir f- finally being overthrown. And a lot of it is driven by the sheer force of will and the, uh, uh, the, the women of Sudan just having had enough. So they're at the forefront of that change. And if you, I can't urge enough, this book um, is, is brilliant. And it's so rich. And I, I hope that you'll uh, look for it, especially right now when, mm-hmm. when our minds turn a little bit to Sudan again.
0: Mm-hmm. Out of exile. Um, and oral history was the medium for the book series from the very beginning. Can you? I know that you were um, a huge fan of Studs Terkel um, since childhood. Why oral history in terms of amplifying these st- stories of human rights abuses that rarely get heard?
1: I think that there's no m- more no form of literature more immediate than first person. And there I think that there's no way better to illuminate pivotal moments in contemporary or past history than to hear the, those, uh, uh, hear it through the eyes or see it through the eyes of one individual. And that's how I always felt. I felt like first person just had a very unique power to grip you and to put you in the in the uh, in the shoes of the narrator. And then I started teaching oral history and teaching these narratives to students, high school students, at 826 Valencia, which is our nonprofit in San Francisco. And I saw so many students that might have glazed over, if you talked about immigration issues, for example, in the US. And then you read a first-person narrative from somebody who's just a few years older than them in underground America. Um, and Immediately, they get it, and they're seized, and they're, they become outraged. They become activists within one narrative. Mm-hmm. They want to know what they can do. They can't believe that this is going on in their country. They, uh, so there's something that invites passivity about kind of a GPS view of contemporary yeah. history and politics, but there's something that really gets under the skin and, and makes people um, uh, just alive to. Mm-hmm contemporary history through that first person knowing that that narrator is just just recorded that history months ago sometimes.
0: Yeah, and it's in their voice, it's in their words as well, which is really powerful. Any teachers in the audience tonight? Raise your hands. Great, okay. So, wi- one thing that I want to do a shout out for, it's, it's a plug, I'm going to shamelessly plug Voice of Witness all, all night, that's my job. Okay. Um, we have, so on our website voiceofwitness.org, O-R-G, we have a section that says education and there are a ton of free downloadable curricula. There is a ton of curricula, I should mind my grammar in front of teachers, um, <laughs> that you can download that are paired with e- each book but it's also organized by theme and issue as well. So I'd definitely urge you to check it out. It's all Common Core uh, aligned and if you know teachers, pass it on to them. Um, Um, they really makes a huge difference. So uh, before we uh, invite our special guest to the stage, I wanted to ask you just one more question about why we, um, so one thing that also um, makes Vow stand apart from say traditional journalism or even the field of oral history is that we really prioritize narrator agency. So we have many amazing human rights storytelling, journalistic, journalism organizations that report on human rights crises. But I think one thing that's really important to point out is that oftentimes the people who are sharing their stories don't get a say in how they are disseminated. They don't get a say in how it's presented, how it's edited what parts of the story get left out or not, and that just reinforces their marginalization. So I think that all, uh, you know, we're all here because we're invested in storytelling, so I think we really need to keep that in mind. And one of the things that Voice of Witness does um, throughout the whole process of creating a narrative for one of our books is to ensure that the narrator, i.e. the person who's giving their stories, stays in control from choosing the time and place of their interview to the questions they do and don't want answered to giving final approval over the narrative. And this can range from, oh, you know what? I don't want to include that argument with my husband. It's gonna be a bit embarrassing once it's published um, to the point where we've, we're days away from printing the book and a narrat- and the narrator decides, I don't want my story in there anymore. There was
1: so. out of exile, was yeah. had we had printed it. And one of our narrators from Khartoum, she called us. She called her interviewer and said um, that she didn't feel comfortable uh, with her story out there anymore. It would put her and her family in danger. Um, So we pulped all those books, meaning recycled all of them and recreated the book without her narrative in it. and and that's one of
0: the reasons why we're a nonprofit as well, <laughs> <laughs> because it's not—we don't—we're not in this for the money. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but that um. sense of control—I yeah. went to journalism school, and this is n- a very different type of journalism that we're taught, or I was taught by old newspaper men. Um, but uh, uh, this is about the narrators who have already been victimized, who have already gone through incredible hardship not feeling like from the very beginning they feel safe, they feel like their story is always theirs and there's no risk. It's not going to go to press, they're not going to sh- wake up one day and see something that, uh, that they didn't approve of. So there's that comfort level all the way through where it's a sense of control and that actually leads to an openness that you can't get when you're sticking a microphone in someone's face and moving on, a hit and run journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so. And there's a place for that. And there's a place for very short pieces in a newspaper. This is different. This is much more nuanced. This is much more complicated. um, And and I think that when you read it, knowing that these narrators have empowered, uh, have been empowered by the process, um, it's very different. And you get a level of, a novelistic level of detail, which is what we seek, um, that you can really only get by that cooperation and that sense of safety mm-hmm. and that sense that sometimes these interviews go on for years. Mm-hmm. Our latest book, or a few books ago, was about Haiti after the earthquake. And Peter Orner, the editor, interviewed most of his narrators over the course of three and a half years, um, keep kept going back. It was a long-term relationship. He d- becomes deeply involved in their lives. and um, But that, this is a unique process, but for us it's not about it doesn't end when the book is printed. There's a long-term relationship, yeah. and maybe that's the perfect segue to, t- to bring up.
0: Yes, Gabriel our latest and book. Yes, so, so I want to introduce Solita Solita properly. Um, this wa- this is a really incredibly powerful collection, um, featuring 15 narrators from Central America who describe, in their own words, why they fled their homes, what happened on their dangerous journeys through Mexico. How they cross the borders, and for some, their ongoing struggles to survive in the United States. Uh, we're very fortunate to have tonight the two editors who conceived of, executed um, this book so beautifully, Jonathan Friedman and Stephen Myers, here tonight in the audience. If you guys like stand, to stand up. up. <laughs> Jonathan's busy taking photographs. of <laughs> <laughs> When we get um, to
1: the Q and A portion, we want yeah, Stephen we and Jonathan you, you to be included. Yeah, we want to hear you both. For
0: sure. Yeah. Um, uh, so you've seen a little bit of um, Soledad's story through the video. We're also gonna now share um, a bit of Gabriel's narrative. Gabriel's asked us to um, share an excerpt from his narrative. Um, a little bit about Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel Mendez s- uh, survived years of sexual abuse and homophobia in Honduras. He was 15 when he made his journey to the US and he's now a student at UC Berkeley. Um, we're going to drop into the part of his narrative where he's uh, making the trip uh, to the U.S. He's already crossed through Mexico and he's now in the Texas desert. We have a few volunteer readers in the audience who've kindly agreed to uh, read some of the excerpts. So, could we have reader number one stand up, please? And actually, do we ha- can we turn on this microphone in the middle? Thank you. If you if you'd like the mic, there's a microphone there. Yeah. Oh wait, use this one. Oh Yeah, or, or this one. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you so much.
2: We carried beans, sardines, and both flour and corn tortillas with us. That's how we moved through the desert without disgusting food. We drank water that was meant for cattle. We drank from anywhere we could find it. It was very cold. The coyote took our jackets and sweaters and used them to brush away our footprints so as not to leave a trail. This made it impossible to put them on because they were covered in cactus pines. We had to keep watch for the border patrol airplanes and helicopters. Only once did we run into US immigration. They went by the road, but we ducked and hid behind so they didn't see us. This coyote was called El Diablo. He liked one of the girls in one of our groups from Guatemala, and he raped her in the desert. She was 18, I think. He was an older man, maybe 30 or 40 years old. We slept every night in the desert. There was a woman with us who was six months pregnant. There was another man from Guatemala who couldn't walk anymore because of his swollen feet. Two people had to carry him.
3: We were all very tired. They would give us drugs to keep us awake, ecstasy and I don't know what other types of drugs, different colored pills. I began to feel extreme anxiety from the drugs they were feeding us. Every three hours was another pill, pill after pill. We felt no hunger, no cold, no weariness. The last night they ran out of pills and we were very cold. The cold was killing me. We bundled up together to generate heat. We kept walking, running, jumping fences, and dodging cactus spines. Okay. We came upon another group of people who'd been traveling two days ahead of us, ahead of us. The, a young man under 18 had perished from exposure and lack of water and food. Five fa- family members stayed with the dead body. Their coyote and the rest of the group had abandoned them.
0: Thank you so much. Can we give a round of applause for our readers, please?? And I'd like you to join me in welcoming Gabrielle Mendez to the stage. Gabrielle. <laughs> um, I'd also like to, uh, for you to join me in welcoming Soledad Castillo. Soledad, um, just a little bit about Soledad. Soledad Castillo, as you've seen a little bit from her video, she survived uh, molestation, a life-threatening illness, and child labor before deciding to leave her native Honduras for the U.S. After making the dangerous journey here, she faced neglect and abuse in the foster care system. Today, Soledad is a graduate of San Francisco State University. She's passionate about reforming the foster care system to better support the rights of migrant children. And she works for an organization that reunites inmates in San Francisco jails with their families. Can you please join me (laughs) in giving a warm welcome to Soledad Castillo. really lucky to have you both here with us tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. So first of all, Gabrielle and Soledad, how did it feel to tell your story?
4: So I guess it was the best decision I have ever made because um, many other immigrants can relate to my story and they can open up to other people around them. And I guess that's the main part, like creating change and telling others and just opening up, this is something normal. Many in our community or culture, our, telling our stories is not a thing. And even when you want to tell it to your father, mother, or any family members, it's hard to tell it. So, But in a classroom setting or someone reading a story, they won't feel alone. And that's the main thing. They're not going to feel never so little again. Mm-hmm. What about you, Salida?
5: It was a learning experience, you know, and our culture, as Gravel mentioned, we're not allowed to speak up about our feelings, about how we feel. And it was opportunity for, for me to find people who are inter- who were interested in hearing how I was, how was my childhood, what happened to me. And and for me, as I mentioned, the beauty was a way of healing, you know, to talk about all my trauma that I went through as my childhood, and seeing that I'm not the only one, the other people go through the same and feeling no ashamed about myself.
0: Mm, thank you. Um, so first, Gabrielle, can you tell us, um, so you came here from Honduras at the age of 14 going on 15, and now you're a first generation student at UC Berkeley. That's amazing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood in Honduras and what led to your decision to leave?
4: So I grew up in Camayahuela Honduras and which is part of the main city Tegucigalpa. We were like a poor family and one of the most dangerous communities in Tegucigalpa. We were surrounded by members of the Mara 18 and MS thirteen. They were o- always fighting and there were shots every every day after five. So we weren't allowed to go out after five. Also like my mom left to the U.S. because she survi- she's a survivor of domestic violence and many of my aunts had to flee. Um, but before she left, she would leave me and my sisters alone at home and I would have to take care of them. Sometimes I would have to, to do all of the um, housekeeping and it was hard. And what was the worst was that I was sexu- being sexually abused on top of going to school, t- taking care of my siblings. I had some people around my family and they would come home and they would rape me on their beds. Um, there was this time when there, w- there was this guy, he, he. we went to sleep in one room because his wife had invited us to stay. He, in the morning, she left at four in the morning to work and he was in the bed naked with two childs. One was two, the other one was three. And then he brought me to the bed and he raped me in front of those children. I was seven or eight. Since like a very young age I was raped by more than five different people. And sometimes like they weren't rapes, but they would touch me. Sometimes they would do stuff. So there were like a couple of individuals doing it. I left Honduras because I was threatened and persecuted by gangsters. I was going to school. They wanted me to bring drugs to school. I didn't want to do it because I knew that my destiny was gonna be or dying or getting into prison. One of my cousins got killed. And then, I mean, one of my uncles got killed, 50 shots. And I didn't want it to happen to me because I wanted to see my mom again. I haven't, at that point, I didn't see my mom for 10 years already. And I just told my mom that I wanted to leave because the gangsters that killed my uncle were looking for me, and also the other gangsters that wanted me to bring drugs to school. So that's why I decided to leave on top of poverty. I didn't have a great education. I got to sixth grade in Honduras. We had, I had a lot of academic gaps because teachers were threatened, so they wouldn't come to the community to teach, they were in pain, so they wouldn't come to teach, and so on. Um, Gabrielle,
1: along the way, on your journey, you came across the Zetas, uh, the drug cartels, and you mentioned, um, well, I wonder if you could talk about that, and also When you undertook your journey, what did you know going into it that you would face along the way? Were you aware of all of the dangers?
4: I knew I had to pay mordidas to many of the um, authorities from Guatemala and Mexico and from Honduras. I didn't have, like, any identification, no passport, nothing. So they always wanted money. They didn't care where I was going, if I was being, like, kidnap or whatever, they didn't care. And when I was in Guatemala, they asked for some money. Then we went to Mexico. When we were getting to Tamaulipas, uh, t- in order to, I- to get into Miguel Alemán, we had to talk to the setas. Me- and if we didn't talk to the setas, we weren't allowed to go to the town. And if we entered the town without a code that we have to pay for, they will kill us. So we have to p- my mom paid five hundred dollars to the to setas the, um, so that I c- could get the code. The code is Mario, so with that code, I was free to to enter the place, but we weren't allowed to go out in the town because drugs were t- going across that town and because other things were happening with narcos and but there were other people in the same bus who didn't make it. They were taken by the setas, and I don't know what happened to them.
1: And along the way, you were also offered money to stay and to do what?
4: So I was offered 1500 per week in McAllen, Texas by this coyote. He asked me if he, he wanted to live with me as like a partner or whatever. I was 14 at that moment, and he said he offered money, and he would give me food and, and like a home. And yeah, and so many other people were offered, mostly kids were offered a lot of money to stay with those people, offering—I mean, giving them sex or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Gabriel, can you once you arrived in San Francisco, um, can you share some of the challenges that you faced in terms of seeking asylum and getting yourself set up in school?
4: So it was like three months after i came i I wanted to see if I could get papers or whatever I got to this place and they told me that i couldn't get i mean they interviewed me for a couple of hours, but after words they told me that they couldn't take my case that, that i I didn't have any proofs that I got sexually abused or that my father abused my mother or that gangsters were looking for me so i got for I- for a year i i be- i became like undocumented and but this time like My sisters came in 2014 with all of those children, so they got a free lawyer from the government. And the same lawyer, she saw me sitting in a couch, and she told me that she was gonna do the whole process for free for me. She interviewed me for a couple of hours, and she said that I could get an asylum. And she knew that my story was a big story, so she took me to Telemundo, NBC, and I got to school on January 2014 but it was hard getting to the school just because my mom didn't have access or she didn't know how to navigate the system she she was used to work she doesn't know like where downtown San Francisco is she had been living in San Francisco for for 10 years she didn't know where the district was so we had to ask different people around so where the district was what was the process like sometimes we were told that We couldn't go to school because we needed papers but uh, we may we try going to to the district and i got accepted to san francisco international high school and for a couple of months i struggled because of my trauma i i didn't want to go to school at that point and then i got this case manager which is not like a therapist and he came and he was coming every other day or every other week to school to talk to me but I never wanted to talk to him because I had all of the trauma and I wanted someone to really hear my story. So one day I decided to talk to him. And right at, like at the middle of the whole thing, he left the room crying because he couldn't handle the whole story with details. And he told me that he needed to find a lawyer. I mean, I needed to find a social worker. And he opened so much of my story that I didn't know how to handle it. Mm. After those days, I got a lot of, um panic attacks and the ambulance had to come to school and take me to the hospital and yeah Mm.
0: um and can you talk a little bit about how you managed to transition from those early days in the education system to ending up at uc berkeley
4: so when i got to san francisco international high school there was this teacher who had uh, students divided up into groups the ones who were like recent arrival they were like that dumps from the class, so they were learning some basics, and I told her why I wouldn't why why was this difference in segregation happening within the classroom? And she told me the bec- the whole s- process that they were doing. So the uh, the week after that, I I got to get my A like A's on all my classes, so I got to be in that group of students, and since that point, it was like my first semester in 10th grade. I got a straight A's until 12th grade. And I got engaged with the ACLU, and then Causa Justa, a nonprofit organization in San Francisco, and some other organizations fighting for immigrants' rights. I got to come to Washington, D.C. two times in 2016 for the ACLU program, and in 2017, during integration, we were trying, t- we were protesting and planning out like the protest, and yeah. That's why I got accepted to UC Berkeley because I have a lot of courage and I just want to make change in my community.
1: We have to applaud uh, for yeah. Gabriel. <laughs> I, I want to ask maybe both of you and then we'll go back to your, we'll start over with you, that yeah. but does your activism, because you are both so active in social justice I- issues, does that, is that healing for you at all? Does that give you a sense of, um, I don't know, correcting some of the injustices or attempting to that you uh, experienced?
4: I guess it is empowerment in a way. You get all of this courage, you have gotten all of this help. So what will you do for the community? What will you do for those kids uh, struggling? So my I, I always have been like that. My grandmother taught me to, to always share whenever I had a lot of things, or if we didn't have a lot of money, sometimes we didn't have food, I would share with my sisters, I would share with her. Sometimes I wouldn't eat to give to my sisters. So I, I grew up with these values, and I guess that's what make my, this whole interest and also having Causa Justa, and they like giving us like some opportunities to to work in the organizations, giving us sometimes stipends because we couldn't work because I didn't have papers. So I guess that encouraged me to continue with the work to help the immigrant community.
5: Mm -hmm. Uh, To me, me, helping my community, it gives me hope. When I turn on the TV and I see news, everything that's going on in the world, violence, it made me sad, you know? And and I wish sometimes I can have that much power to change the world and to make uh, other people's lives a little bit better. So helping my community, it helps. It helps me a lot. uh, And as a child, I always uh, dream of helping others. That's the value that my grandmother taught me. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Gabriel.
0: Thank you, Soledad. Um, So, Soledad, we got a little glimpse at your story from the video, Um, but can you tell us a little bit more about your childhood um, in Honduras, and yeah, just wherever you wanna jump in.
5: I was born in Honduras. Um, my pa- parents got divorced when I was born. So I grew up with my mother, my stepfather, and my and my grandmother, my mom and my stepfather. My mom was a housekeeper, and my mom has another five children, uh, si- more, more four sisters and one brother and it wasn't enough. So my grandmother was the one who has to work in two jobs in order to help us to survive, to provide us food. We were the poorest c- um, family in our communities. There were days uh, we only ate tortilla and sal for months. And with d- we from five or six, we had to uh, start learning how to sell mangoes, fruits, in order to buy our own lunch in school. So my mom, my grandmother works in two jobs, a housekeeper, and she, was, um, she worked in the city, and every Sunday was the day that she would come with big bags of food. So Sundays was our special day for the family. Um, my grandfather never liked me for some reason. She, uh, he always liked my other sister, but not me. And my grandmother knew that, so she always would protect me from him. Uh, sadly, my grandmother passed away when I was 10. Uh, she was everything for me. In my, my family, we're not used to show love to each other. We don't say to each other, I love you. Um, take care of your everything, you know, you're my daughter. So my mom never had me, never to- told me, I love you, daughter. So my grandmother was that person for me. So it was my everything. The person who taught me how to love, how to, sh- how to be caring, how to, to respect other people. So she taught me those, like, a lot of stuff. And for me, losing her at that age was devastating. Everything changed. And I remember, you know, waiting for her on that Sunday. You know, those Sundays was special for me. And She's waiting and sitting on a rock, thinking like, why i am not the one who's dead instead of her, you know? Because I miss her so much. And by that point, I didn't have, you know, that much much curse to be alive, you know? For me, she was everything. And after she passed away, my stepfather sexually abused me for a couple of times. And when I decided to tell my mom so what happened with my stepfather? she didn't believe me. He didn't in front of my other two um, um, younger sisters, and I just remember you know running and the an I outside of my house, asking for help, and all that i I want to to ask was where is my grandmother? you know where is the person who protect me and so I was hoping that my mom would understand and be caring, and, but no, she didn't believe me and she decided to pack my clothes and send me to the city. At that time, I was 11 years old and I had to, to leave the house, leave my sisters and leave with a broken heart. How, if you're a mother, how are you not going to protect your child? How are you not going to believe your child? when all that I wanted was her protection, you know? So for me, it was devastating, you know, knowing that I didn't have the support that I want from her. After, uh, so I went to the city and I was 11, being a housekeeper and taking care of children so in order to have a food or play. And at the same time I was working, I got sick. Uh, the doctors diagnosed me with lupus I was in the hospital for two years. I lost my hair, I couldn't walk, I was taking 15 pills per day for almost two years. And at the end, when I was, when I was about to, to, to die, they told me that they mi- misdiagnosed my file with another patient. Mm. So they told me that I never had lupus, that they make a mistake. And I had all the symptoms, but it was because all the pills that I was taking for so long. And yeah, but you know, though in those three in those two years, a lot of things happened. It was painful, you know. The I have all the symptoms of the disease, like they were nice me uh, in the bed, like. Wishing to be there, you know. Sometimes people wish to be to get help, but I was wishing to be there because it was really painful. I couldn't walk. I couldn't eat for months because my mouth was full of things inside that I couldn't swallow anything. And people, people would make fun of me because I was, I had the pill called Prednisone. We made me fat from here to here and a skinny from that. So we people we throw me rocks, other kids, you know, making fun of me. So it was a pr- really you know painful process, and all that I wished was, you know why why, why why I'm not dead, you know why why I'm here. You know, but God gave me another opportunity. So I decided to reach, to r- to reach out to my dad, that he was I'm here in the United States by then, and I asked him to bring me to the United States with him. He said yes, he came to Honduras. And I was happy and angered at the same time seeing him because I blamed him for everything, you know, for moments I, bl- I blamed him for everything that happened to me. Like, why you left me alone? Why, why you got divorced with my mom when i most needed? You know, where, where were you before? But at the same time, he was my only hope, you know, to have a better life and to, and to continue my life.
1: He ended up paying for your um, trip up to the United States, but the story didn't get that much easier once you got here and you were very soon, as a teenager, living on your own. Can you talk about once you arrived?
5: So I immigrated to the United States when I was 14. So when we talk about United States and Honduras, we talk about that, American dream that everything is so easy, that everything is so wonderful, that things will come out easy, that your, chi- your life will be much better. And but we never like listen about all the things that obstacles that we had to to go through in order to have all of that. So first uh, to take to the trip to United States was almost a month, one month. Um, I had to walk for days. In Guatemala, I almost get sexually molested by people on in the bus. Uh, a person put me a gun in my head. And, but as a child, you never thought about all of those things. You, you never think about the dangers that you have to go through. I have, people had to give me uh, drugs in order to, to walk in the desert, in order to finish the, all the work that we had to do. Uh, there were days I didn't have food or water. So, and it was hard when I came to, when I ride to United States, I have the dream to go to school because I want something different, something different that I have in Honduras. And my my first thing was, okay, dad, can I go to school? He's like, no. In our country, you have the mentality that you come to United States, you make a lot of money, you make your house, and you go back to your country. But education is not an option. So that, that broke my heart too. <laughs> I was like, duh, but I want to go to school. I was only 14, and he's like, no, you have to work. I worked in two jobs. I was 14, I, wa- working in, I was working in two jobs. I was working from seven in the morning to 12 in the morning, and I was lo- working in the laundry. And after a year, he decided to go back to Honduras, and I didn't want to go back to Honduras. this. Leaving my country, it was hard. Leaving my mom, it was hard. I know she's not a perfect mom, but she's my mom. We don't choose our mothers, and I still love her. And it was hard for me to make the decision to come here, leaving my sister still. But I want, I want something different. I want to be different, to be uh, someone educated. So I decided to stay in the U.S. And that's when I entered the foster care system. In the foster care system, I I had two foster homes. By then, I didn't speak any English at all. I didn't know anything. I was new to everything. And they put me in the foster care system and put me in this house where I was mistreated. I I ended up at the hospital more than three times because I wasn't given food at all. All that I ate was one up for a day. That was my food. But I, I was scared to speak up because I didn't know what was the foster care system, how I was supposed to be treated. I didn't have a social work that I sp- I spoke Spanish, so she only speaks English, so I didn't have that way to communicate with her, to, to tell her what's going on. Until someone, um, someone uh, another youth got, got to the same house and she spoke up for me and went when I was transferred to another house and where I was loved and respectful. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then from there you went on to study at, uh, well, you ended up going to high school
5: and then you ended up at San Francisco State. You, when did you graduate? Yes. So I emancipated for the foster care system at age 18. I moved to San Francisco, uh, to San Francisco. I entered c- City College. I graduated from City College in 2060 and I transferred to San Francisco State, uh, to San Francisco State, and I graduated last year from San Francisco State. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I
0: understand that you're now applying for a master's for graduate school. Yes,
5: I am in the process of applying for my master in social work, clinical social work. Mm. Fantastic. <laughs> what are your? Um,
0: what are
4: your hopes for the future for both of you? Help my community. Help those who aren't being helped, and just like trying to educate society because some part of society doesn't know like why we are going through. The other part of society, which is my community, we don't know what treatment we should get from different organizations or from the country. Sometimes, like there are some rec- I mean rules that the president brings up like okay now we will have to pay for to become a refugee or you will have to do this but they are not respecting respecting our human rights so like I guess like that's my motivation telling them that they have rights that they shouldn't just like sign the deportation and go back because I know many of my people I mean from my community they went back and they got killed because you have to pay gangsters like two hundred thousand and per week to survive. So sometimes they they came here and they didn't make it and they will have to pay that money. Mm-hmm. If the family doesn't have that money, they get killed. Mm-hmm. So that's my main thing, like supporting mm-hmm. my community.
0: And Soledad, um, assuming that you will go to the school of your dreams and get your masters in social work, what do you hope to do with that
5: uh, in the future? Helping the Spanish speakers, you know, for me, I went I went through a lot for not knowing the language, and I'm still learning, you know, and sometimes we don't take advantage of all the services that we have because the language barriers. Mm-hmm. And I think my goal is, you know, to help my community in that aspect. And, you know, and hope to, you know, to uh, speak up and, and, you know, to, to speak up about, like, you know, the things that we need, and, and hopefully, you know, much in the future, we're going to have a better, you know, system f- when it comes to immigration
1: both of you guys. Now that the Trump administration is trying desperately to change the rules of asylum, you were both asylum, you were both granted asylum in this country. Um, They want to eliminate uh, Jeff Sessions almost a year ago and uh, eliminated uh, the possibility to seek asylum based on sexual violence at home, domestic abuse, a host of other uh, qualifications that have been in place for decades Can you talk about that? uh, How you see that and what that's meant to you while you've been going through this this asylum process or having recently been granted it, seeing it snatched away from, for the possibility for thousands more?
4: It has been proven, I've seen the news, many people going back and getting killed since 2015 to the present. And I guess like if I, myself, like if they have like had deported me to Honduras, since I'm LGBTQ, I came to the US, and they, I, I, wasn't in my community for a certain time. They would have killed me right away, or they would want me to to join the gu- to join the gangs, or I would be four meters on the ground. So like they are not thinking critically about the safety and a human life. They are thinking about money and resources, resources that they have taken from my country because they invaded our country first. They came with the United Fruit Company. We have to buy food to Guatemala and Nicaragua and El Salvador and all of the food is coming to the the United States and other big countries, and we're having like nothing for us. We have six military bases within Honduras. They are trying to build huge buildings in Honduras, and we will have to follow the US law. And they aren't doing anything for us, but they are getting all our resources, getting all all of our help. And this thing is gonna get worse on um, climate change is starting merging because of like the high temperatures. Th- there is a lot of droughts. There is no like way to to get food. So and no p- the president is a uh, corrupt. And Donald Trump elected our president. The people didn't. So that's another thing.
5: Mm. Soledad, so Anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, sending people back to their country and coming back to their s- their same environment. where There is no where it's you not, know, the economy is r- really bad. The gang's violence is getting worse every day. So it's not a solution, you know. Uh, when it comes to immigration, we always talk about political, but we, st- we need to start talking about immigrants as, as a people, you know, as a human beings, you know. It's if I ask you, do we stay in a place where there's no food, where there's nothing, where ch- children cannot go to, out of their house because they might get killed? There there's no jobs. You will stay in that country, so it's like common sense that people we do everything in their hands to look for something better and it is just devastating, you know. People are sending back but they're sending back the same country where the poverty is still there, violence is still there. So actually I think there's no hope there. And both of you
0: actually recently made a trip to the Tijuana US border, right? And you crossed into Mexico for the first time as legal U.S. residents, and while you were there, you met women and children who were part of the caravan. How did that feel for you at the time?
5: It feels, you know, if I was with so much energy, but when I saw the caravan, and I saw children walking without shoes, like being starving, like days without eating, I was devastating because that was me, you know, years ago. And I was lucky to, to cross the border, but for them it's like they're like one step away from their dreams and they cannot complete it because these political issues, you know? And it was sad, you know, wanting to do a lot, but you, you, your hands are so tied that, you know, the people who had the power are the ones who, you know, had to, you know, to do those changes.
4: For me, I felt like so a sa- uh, lot of safety in San Diego because we were representing in City College of San Diego. Then we went to Tijuana and everything changed. It was like getting into another world. And I was like, when I got to immigration in Mexico, they, they saw my passport and they were freaking out. I knew the reason the, the caravan was gonna get that day and next day to Tijuana. And I was tracking members of the caravan since August 2018, the first caravan, the huge one. So that caravan, it took them like almost three months to get to Tijuana with their children. So it wasn't a thing like they didn't like t- like they didn't come like in a plane to Tijuana. They had to travel thousands of miles in order to get to Tijuana, but nobody, stayed, not, nobody cares. Only those like human, real human beings in Mexico and, and Guatemala gave them food, but they gave them food to the, to the first caravan but those people who are poor, they cannot provide for all of those people coming through their country. Mm-hmm. And the governments aren't doing anything. Now it's getting worse. The um, Mexican government is, t- is raping like children from their mothers. They're sending back to Honduras. I don't know the, how they're handling the system. Many of the members of the caravan have been taken by narco. And n- we, don't, we don't know how many people have died and when I saw the members of the caravan, I remember like there was this catering company who came to give like some food, and I, re- I don't know, but we have like this sign in Honduras that means that there's food, and I did that, and there were like so many people running to get to the man and get food, and I remember so that I was crying because like everyone was running around. If you moved, they would run over you because they were all hang- hungry, sick. There was this other guy who was passing out. Nobody gave him like, they g- like the the Mexican authorities gave them medicine, but they didn't give them food. So they were passing out. They couldn't go to the beach. In the other side of the border, I had a lot of headaches because of the three helicopters. It was like a trauma. The trauma came back. It was like just like imagining like how I went through the desert mm-hmm. and knowing that I was gonna get caught. And then seeing, like, those police officers at the other side with guns and, like, if they were going to war, but they weren't in war, and then the members of the caravan were far, far away from them. And just, like, seeing how this changed. When we got back on that, ne- on that Sunday, um, so many members of the caravan tried to enter the United States. So many people got, like, they, they threw gas, and they were, like, hitting people and doing all of this bad stuff, inhumane things, because nobody is, I guess, documenting what is, documenting what is happening. The UN, the other, org- no, I mean, huge organizations are just like being like blind, the news, they are putting whatever they want, they are trying, they have like bias, they use us as political things. During that time, it was like, right before the midterm elections, and they use that as like a political thing, but they they promised us that it wa- they were going to help these people, and now they they are in Congress and they aren't doing anything for us.
0: So, um, I just want to ask one last question before we throw it out to your questions. Um, you know, we're we're getting tight
1: on time. Yeah. So I thought one thing we could do. I thought it was important to talk to Jonathan and Stephen. Um, You guys, uh, these are the two editors of the book. They stood up earlier, but there's no way to describe just how much work goes into uh, putting a book like this together and doing it sensitively and and causing no harm. And these guys, I think, deserve a round of applause for (laughs) editing it.
0: Could you stand Um, up, both of you? And we have a couple of questions for you.
1: And I, I wonder if you guys could just tell us a little bit about the process and what you learned along the way and what surprised you. And you guys all knew each other from City College and where you teach. And give, it, give us a little bit of background.
6: Well, first of all, I want to thank um, Gabriel and Soledad. We've been through this journey now four and a half years. And uh, to Mimi and Dave for creating this wonderful voice of witness structure that enabled us to do this. Um, one of the things when you're, when you're um, meeting people who are very vulnerable is that you want to respect them, especially if they're minors. You have to respect that these are very, very fragile people. And there are 15 narrators in our book, each with a story Each as compelling as these stories. They don't all end up at UC Berkeley or uh, going to graduate school. Um, So you want to be very careful, um, but you want to ask questions that will enable a young person to talk. So one of the things we found, Stephen and I, when both of us have a background in immigration issues, um, there was a surge in 2014 and the question when Stephen approached me with the idea of this book, the question was who are these children coming? Who are these unaccompanied minors? Who are these young women with children? Why are they coming? And At the p- time, we thought this was a, a, structu- a book about this border, the US border with Mexico. But as we began asking these questions like, what was it like to be eight years old? We began realizing and they began talking about their lives, uh, their families, their childhoods, things like that. I just wanna say one more thing. Americans, we have our own problems here in this country as everyone knows. We have poverty, we have abuse, we have all these kinds of things. So many Americans, especially in unfortunate parts of our country are wondering, why should we take these people in? The answer is, the answer is that we invaded them. Um, we, we engaged in the wars in El Salvador, in, in the genocide in Guatemala, in the army of the Contras from Honduras to fight against the regime in Nicaragua. And just one, one particular thing, that when the United States was engaged in El Salvador, which was a very bloody civil war, 500,000 people fled from El Salvador and they came to the United States. And many of them landed in Los Angeles in the worst uh, gang-ridden areas of LA. And these Salvadoran kids who'd witnessed all kinds of atrocities became the most violent and brutal gangs in Los Angeles called the Maras. And they were deported back to El Salvador, finished. The United States is finished with these people. What we, d- what we didn't realize was th- that th- that gang would multiply and they would become connected with the, the narcotraficantes, the drug gangs from uh, Colombia. And those are the gangs that, that when, when um, uh, Gabriel was growing up, were killing people. They were like 13 years old with guns. and so. This cycle has been going on, and there are Salvadoran gangs here right now in New York, I know. So, I just want to say that this is not just that they're coming from bad families and bad people who... This is enmeshed with the United States.
0: Thanks so much. <laughs> um, I just want to wrap up by saying that now that the book's out and that we can read these stories, there are lots of ways that you can take action and support Central American refugees. Um, 10 of those things you can do are listed in the back of this book, 10 things you can do, which range from writing to your local representative, to petition, if you're an educator, petitioning for special programs for migrant students, also volunteering or donating uh, money to organizations that help fresh, uh, freshly arrived migrant youth like Soledad and Gabrielle. Um, but This list of 10 things is more in depth than I can have, that I have time to uh, describe right now, but I would really urge you to check this out. Um, And I think we, we do we have time for questions? I think we have time for one or two brief questions before we wrap up. (coughs) And there's a microphone, yeah.
7: Hi, um, I'm Juan, and you guys just reminded me of my dad's life. My dad was an immigrant from El Salvador, and basically half of what you said is my dad's life, mm. to a T. From like, I just got a lot of memories from of hearing, hearing telling that, and I just want to say thank you. Like, um, I guess my question is: I have a son. I'm a, my dad's Salvadoran, my mom's Honduran, and I was lucky to be born here. Went to college here, and work for a nonprofit that helps parks and kids in New York City and senior citizens and my question is um, how do I pass on to my son not just being grateful for living in this country but like not having that guilt as well and like how he can look forward and saying you know appreciating what he has without like because the news will throw so many different things and depending on where you watch you'll have a different view so I would like to hear your thoughts on that.
4: I guess you just like making your point, telling your father's story to them, showing videos. There's a lot of videos of things happening, how our people are getting oppressed in Central America. And you can show him like, okay, this is the things that they are going through. You can show the pictures of kids without food, without doing, without so many privileges. And I guess like he's gonna get it. And you can show some of our pictures. I get from the book, there's this picture when I just came like first minute with my mom, I was all crying because I didn't see her for 10 years, and I'm grateful for that. And I guess like many people will relate to that because like once you miss your family, I guess that's hard to get it back.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh, she used to uh, teach your children where you come from. You, know. you never forget where you come from, where your family come from, and she used to teach those values to them. My grandmother taught me a lot about leaves, and I still carry them, and I'm planning to teach that to my children. And choose to to be humble, you know, with the community. We all have to be grateful for what we have and not forget where we come from.
1: Thank you for that. Um, We're out of time. I want to make a few quick announcements.
2: You've got got about another five
5: five minutes. Oh, really? Then my
1: clock is wrong.
5: Five ten. Yeah. Steve, Stephen,
1: do you still have that microphone? Yeah. Oh, okay. Give us a few words about the
3: process from your perspective. Sure, sure. my pleasure. Um, yeah, it was. It's been an honor to speak to. I mean, so many incredible human beings over the past four or five years. Um, I uh, I started interviewing Central Americans about a decade ago. Um, Central Americans who had survived the the war years, um, and um, for a dissertation project. And um, I, I lived in Spain a little bit in, in, in Mexico and. I've been taken into the homes of, of many Mexicans and Central Americans, you know, just doors wide open, uh, fed and just, you know, taken in. And, I, um, and you know, I, d- I just feel a, feel a debt um, that I think we should all feel tonight um, because of the fact that, um, you know, America doesn't open t- its doors to, to, uh, to Central Americans. A- and on, on the contrary, America, you know, breaks through its doors, you know, and, and enters um, without, without permission and and I think you've seen you've heard a lot of cycles historical cycles tonight from from Gabriel and from from soledad and and from from Jonathan and from us um, you know I- in in this book we tried to sort of contextualize the stories but really let let the um, humans speak and we feel that uh you know like Dave was saying earlier about the first person when you when you read a story in the first person, you literally kind of um, you know step into their shoes for a second you know and you uh and you ask yourself questions like, "Well, what would I have done if I didn't have any, you know, food to eat? You know, what would I have done if I um, was a mother with three kids, and my Ms. 13 boyfriend was trying to kill me in San Salvador? A- and and he was keeping, this is the story of Danelli actually in the book, um, and he was keeping, you know, one child away from me so that I wouldn't uh, be able to escape. And then one afternoon I had all three of them with me, and I took the chance and I just left. You know, um, so." It's been a real honor to, um, to meet so many people. And uh, yeah. I mean
1: thank you, Stephen. Absolutely. And thank you again, Stephen and Jonathan, for all the work that you put into. <laughs> um, you have a uh, I w- what's that? There's
8: a question over here. Oh, I d- I d- yeah, you're d- all dressed up. It's I the black uh, suit. It's yeah. hard to see in the dark. <laughs> before, I pre- before I ask my two part question, let me provide some background. I empathize with both of you uh, as a first generation Latino who comes from a family that has a lot of uh, family members who have crossed the border illegally, been kidnapped across the border. My mother crossed the border several times illegally. Um, you know I have stories that are uh, it's amazing the things that my family members have survived. Um, to add some more context, uh, as a first generation Latino, Part of what I do is I employ uh, illegal immigrants, hopefully there's no one from ICE here, I- <laughs> in an attempt to help the Latino community, in particular illegal immigrants. My thesis in graduate school, which I also do on this side, is going to be about helping illegal immigrants. Now that I give that context, though, I have to ask two questions. Question number one. Um, I understand this concept that it's the United States' fault that Latin American countries are in the conditions that that they are and that because of that we should accept illegal immigrants. My first question is at what time do we place the responsibility on those Latin American countries instead of just on the United States? Because a lot of the incidents that you mentioned are from the 80s I believe. Now I could be mistaken because I haven't studied this material in some time But if that is in fact the case, at what point in time do we say it's no longer the US's responsibility but Latin American countries? And then the second question is, you mentioned previously that um, you you made a statement that Trump placed the president today in Honduras. Uh, My question there is, is that a matter of opinion? And if it's a fact, can you please be very specific as to what your evidence is? please inform me. It's it's a genuine question, yeah.
4: thank so you. So like the gun things wasn't only in the 80s, it's getting worse. If you see the news in Honduras, I guess you're gonna get a lot of context. I can show you a lot of pictures and videos of people getting killed. I can show you videos of people getting extortion and all of these things. But and the question
8: is, not about the gangs increasing, yeah. but the country, o- Honduras taking responsibility versus the US, just to clarify.
4: This thing is started in the United States and also the United States is intervening in our politics. So we, today? how? Today, yeah. How please, because I oh, don't know. So basically they, they elect, they have the Masi and they have the, uh, these other organizations that are supposed to, to go against the corrupt ones, but they aren't doing their work. If there was this video by Norma Torres, a congresswoman, who was asking Pompeo for the evidence because Juan Orlando's brother is in prison here in in New York because of narcotraffic. So this is like evidence you have, and you can go see him in prison right here. Mm -hmm. And like, do you think that's gonna be a good president? And then Juan uh, Juan Orlando was elected because of Donald Trump. They had the, the, the last say of who was gonna be the president, either Narrala or Juan Orlando. And they say, like, okay, Juan Orlando. And in the Honduran constitution, it says that it's prohibited for anyone to reelect. And the United States intervened and they said that it was okay to do so. Mm. And it is not allowed to yeah. do all of these stupid things because they wanted to benefit from our country, because they want to do the Ciudades Modelos.
8: That's very informative. Yeah, thank,
1: thank
0: you. Thank you so much yeah. for that question. Thanks, Gabriel, for the answer. Um, we, we <laughs> You're the one who can say one well.
1: I just want to wrap up and say, um, First of all, there's books in the back that are signed by Soledad and and Gabriel, and um, other Voice of Witness books if you'd like to look at them. I also want to emphasize that this book, um, we've talked about some of the larger geopolitical issues, but this book is about humans and about individuals and about dreamers of the American dream. And no one dreams that dream harder and better than immigrants, and especially people like Gabriel and Soledad that live it every day and have made it real. They embody it, so they deserve our thanks for reminding us what it means and how incredibly hard people will fight to get it because it's real. Do you agree? Um, so I want to emphasize that. The book actually has incredible hardship, and, um, and uh, uh, it's difficult at times, but there, there are... There is great hope in it and resilience and the the human spirit that I think you get almost nowhere else in anything that you can read. So I want to emphasize that even though it's in light of the sort of the darker geopolitical, the issues we've been talking about. And I want to ask Soledad and Gabrielle to finish up the evening
4: to talk about what you want our readers to take away, our audience to take away from your stories. So the thing that always Jonathan says, like from solito, solita to solidarity.
5: Same thing. Can we applaud for
1: these guys?
0: <laughs> thank you so much to Penn and to the New Rican Poets Cafe and to Soledad, Gabriel, and Dave. And thank you all so much for coming out tonight. We'll be hanging out for a little bit afterwards if you want to come and say hi. Thank you.